you that are utilizing our children's ministry, again, we run that through the first grade, and your kids are most welcome back there. For those of you who choose to have children remain in the service, they're most welcome here. We love having uh, kids in our service, again, learning the just the rhythm of uh, our gathering, of our worship uh, every single Sunday. We've been working through just kind of week by week our particular confession of faith, the 1689 London Confession of Faith, and we've just been reading a paragraph by paragraph each Sunday. Last week we looked at paragraph five. This morning I'm going to read paragraph number six, which if you're familiar with Romans chapter one is, is grounded in Romans chapter one, God giving uh, those who are in rebellion, habitual rebellion, up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts, to the dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchange the truth of God for a lie, right? And in, in turn, worship the creature rather than the Creator, who's blessed forever. Amen. And this is this is the paragraph that comes from that and comes from other places. It says this, It's for those wicked and ungodly men whom God is a righteous judge for former sin doth blind and harden. From them he not only withholdeth his grace whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraweth the gifts which they had and exposeth them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin and withal gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves, even under those means which God useth for the softening of others. And so just the seriousness and the deceitfulness of sin uh, and God uh, as our righteous judge. And so with that said, if you have your Bibles, I'm actually going to just have you open them. We're going to move to a few different places this morning. We, um, as I mentioned at the beginning of this month, as members uh, at Deer Park Fellowship, we prayerfully uh, consider our membership together every January as we re-sign our membership covenant. So because of that, and, be and because we've had many new families that have been visiting us over these last few months, the elders thought that it would be beneficial if we spend some time kind of working through who we are as a local church in light of God's Word and how God's Word ne necessitates a particular way for us uh, to function as a local church. Um, so the first Sunday of this month, we um, we looked at three particular words. We looked at the words biblical, reformed, and joyful. Last Sunday, we looked at the significance of gathering every single Lord's Day, and we began to talk about what theologians have called uh, the means of grace. And just by way of reminder on that, we saw last week that A, God is the one that grows us in grace, okay, that God is is growing us, and B, that he has ordained the means by which he grows us in grace. Those means being, being the word, prayer, and sacrament, okay? And, and this morning, we're going to look at one of those particular means, one of those sacraments or ordinances, and I use those terms, sacrament, ordinance, uh, interchangeably, but we're going to look at them in more detail. And the one that we're going to look at this morning, as you can tell from your notes, is baptism, okay? And at the end of the month, I am going to, Lord willing, um, preach a sermon on the Lord's Supper, 
Now, before I read various passages of Scripture, uh, I wanted to say up front this morning, I'm using a few sentences as my takeaways that have been constructed by a good friend of mine named Ron Davidson, who's a, um, a pastor in Hampton, and he's written an excellent book uh, that I think you all should read that's on the ordinary means of grace, and it's called Green Pastures. And uh, so it, it would serve you uh, very well to grab a copy of that book and read it. But let me read a few scripture passages um, that like la- last week will, will help to, to set our minds and help to set our hearts on the right path. And then we're going to make note of several things related to baptism together. Um, okay, so the, the first, and this will become clear why, why I'm reading this in a moment. The first passage I want to read is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And I read this and kind of talked about this passage a few weeks ago, if you remember. And, and you would be familiar with this passage if you spent any length of time in church. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church of Ephesus, reminds us, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Right? We just finished singing about this. And that, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Again, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9. And then we've got the Great Commission, right, that many of us could probably cite from from memory that starts in verse 18. Jesus came and he spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, I go in light of the authority of Christ. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, teaching the disciples to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And then after Peter, the Apostle Peter, his sermon is documented by the physician Luke in the book of Acts, which details the early church beginnings and the the early church growth, if you will. We see Luke record this this incredible detail in chapter 2, verses 41 and 42. It says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. In other words, this would be the gathering, right, including preaching, the Lord's Supper, corporate prayer, along with the baptism of new converts. And then we have Paul's letter to another church, another particular congregation called Colossae. And he says this in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. In him, you were also circumcised, and speaking of Christ in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, and you... Being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. So... This is the word of the Lord, and I'm going to pray, and then we will begin to work through this together. Let's go to God in prayer. God, we thank you for 
just the testimony of Scripture as it relates to our salvation. We thank you for the testimony of Scripture as it relates to baptism, Lord, that these aren't unclear matters. And God, we ask that you would help us, Lord, to see why baptism is a means of grace, Lord. To really see anew what baptism signifies, what it means, what it preaches to us, Lord. And that that would, again, shape the way that we observe it here at Deer Park Fellowship. And we love you and ask for your Spirit's help. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first thing, if you're taking notes, and again, you, you know, kids, for those of you following along with us, you can look at your mom and dad's notes to jot this down. But the first thing, so foundationally speaking, that we should see is that baptism does not save you. Baptism does not save you. Right? This is where we should begin our journey in understanding baptism. And it's probably this morning where I'm going to spend the bulk of my, my time. The, the, the sweeping testimony of Scripture is that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we looked at that passage again, that passage in Ephesians, several weeks ago. But that most important reality is summarized there in, in that passage for us. Right? Our salvation is truly a free gift based solely on the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Our, ju- our justification is by grace through faith. Grace being a gift, faith being a gift. And the moment that, that, that we begin to add a qualifier, right? even a qualifier like baptism, right? we begin to run into a very massive problem. We begin to propagate, whether we intend to or not, a works-based righteousness, a works-based salvation. We we can't say as Christians that it's grace through faith in Christ plus anything, including baptism. That's not the gospel of God. But think for a moment, just to help solidify this in our thinking, Think for a moment of the thief on the cross. In fact, let's, let's look at the passage together. And again, you're going to kind of be turning in different places. But Luke chapter 23, I'm going to read verses 38 to 43 there for you. It says this, is then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, blasphemed Christ, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you're under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man, right, the thief speaking about Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, right, the sweetest words this man's ever heard. Right, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Right? Christ looked at this man. He looked at him with compassion in the midst of his own agony. Right? And he promised him eternal life. Not because this man deserved it. Right? And certainly not because this man was able to be baptized. But Christ looked at him and he gifted him freely 
with eternal life, right? That, that man that hung next to Jesus, think about this. He wasted his entire life. He wasted his entire life. Yet, even the most faithful servant of the Lord is not more deserving of heaven than him. You ever thought about that? Why? Why is that the case? It's because our salvation is based solely on Jesus Christ, right? You and I are saved by the blood of Jesus alone, right? The thief on the cross was saved by Jesus alone. We gain access to God through Jesus, Jesus, no matter what our particular story is. But what are those passages, right? A passage like Acts chapter 2, verses 38 to 39, that seem to indicate that we must do something, that we must be baptized in order to be saved. Look with me there for a moment. Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. And we see the sermon of Peter's here, or after Peter preached a sermon, rather. Peter said to them, repent and let Every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, he says. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And doesn't that seem to say that you have to be baptized for the remission of your sins? Right? Some of you may answer very plainly, yes, actually, But just like with other passages of Scripture, we aren't to read or interpret this passage in isolation from the whole counsel of God's Word, right? The Bible is one cohesive book, right? We shouldn't fragment it off or pit it against the other books in the Bible. But what often happens, because our enemy, the devil, desires to distort the gospel of God to us, right? He often very cleverly uses scripture to send us into bondage, to send us down the path of a, of a frankly damning works-based salvation. So this passage has been used as a, a proof text, if you will, to validate salvation through baptism, or what many of us may have heard of the terminology of baptismal regeneration, baptismal regeneration. And what we need to see is that any false teaching or false belief can use the Bible. Any one of them can if we fail to interpret it in light of the whole counsel of God's Word and prayerfully depend upon the Spirit of God as we read it, right? The Word and the Spirit can't be separated. But what of this passage specifically? Hey, in, in, in context here, Peter, he's preaching to the Jews, and, and not just any Jews. He's not just preaching to any Jews. He's preaching to the very Jews that crucified Jesus. Okay, he says to them earlier in verse 36, if you were to back up there again, look at the passage with me. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord in Christ, both Lord and Christ, and their response to Peter's sermon. And again, I, I encourage you to read this in its entirety. It's significant, okay? It comes right before, their response comes right before his charge to them as it relates to repentance and baptism. This is their response to Peter's spirit-driven preaching, okay? So they, this is what they said. When they heard this, 
And when the Jews who crucified Jesus heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? That phrase there, cut to the heart, pierced, is what some of your translations say, which I think captures the, the, the Greek word there better. That's the only time that that word, that phrase, is used in the New Testament. And it captures well this idea of being caught. They were caught. They were pierced. They weren't able to escape Peter's indictment. They weren't able to escape the truthfulness surrounding the identity of Jesus. Like, you've, like a fish gets hooked in the mouth. So the Holy Spirit of God using the word of God through the preaching of the apostle Peter hooked these Jewish people who had crucified Jesus Christ. It was inescapable. They knew what he was saying was true. There were no two ways about it. So they were under heavy conviction. Heavy conviction for this sin. This incredible sin against the God of the cosmos. And they cry out in desperation, What shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter says, going back to the passage I read a moment, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children, to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Okay, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. That's Peter's reply to them. So a few things here. First, right, to repent is to turn away, right? It's, it's to walk away from your sin, body and soul walking away. That's painful. That's difficult, right, to walk away from those cherished sins that have been nurtured over a long period of time. But it's also a call to walk towards something, right? A person, right? Jesus, the Jesus whom they crucified. Right? Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. But what of this charge to be baptized? Well, Peter, he didn't allow for a private repentance, he wasn't allowing for a private repentance and thus a private faith, right? These Jews who crucified Jesus publicly, who lived comfortable up into this moment in their communities and in their synagogues, they were called to be baptized in the name of the very person that they crucified. Now, you see, Peter was targeting their heart. He was targeting their heart. He was targeting their idols, their lust of power, their lust for reputation, their lust for being insiders instead of being outsiders. To go public with their faith was a call to let go of their idols and to embrace Jesus Christ. Publicly crucifying Christ required public repentance. And baptism was the mechanism, it was the sign, if you will, of this newfound repentance and faith. Now, is there a parallel to this anywhere else in the Word of God? There is. Mark chapter 10, a passage we know is the rich young ruler. Let me Read that starting with verse 17. Again, you can turn there. Verse 17, now, as he was going out on the road, speaking of Jesus, 
One came running and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one's good but one, that's God. And you know the commandments. Points to the law of God, right? Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. At this point in time, right, the rich young ruler is feeling good about himself. That's how deceived he is by his own sin, right? He says, the, the rich young ruler answers and said, Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He loved him. And he said to him, One thing you lack Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. Here's the response. But he was sad at this word, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Did Jesus just tell this man to sell everything that he has and give to the poor to be saved? Plainly, that's what Christ said. Plainly, that's what Christ said. But is that the path to salvation? Is that the path to salvation? We must sell everything that we have and give to the poor. We all may be in trouble if that's the case, right? We could certainly use this as a proof text for that sort of teaching in the same way that Peter's sermon could be used as a proof text for baptismal regeneration. But we know from the whole counsel of God's word that selling your possessions and giving everything to the poor does not grant you eternal life. It doesn't grant you eternal life. It doesn't wash a sin-stained heart. Right, so what is Jesus doing in this passage? Because Jesus doesn't lie. We also know that from the sweeping testimony of Scripture, right? He's doing the same thing Peter's doing in his sermon. In fact, Peter learned this approach from Jesus. Jesus targeted the heart of this hardened, rich, young ruler. The rich, young ruler was, quote, sad, and he went away sorrowful because his possessions had captured his heart. His possessions had captured his heart. Jesus, like Peter, he was very specific in seeking to, to, to help this rich young man walk in repentance and faith. But the rich young ruler, he didn't do this at this moment in time. Peter laid out what repentance looked like for the Jews who crucified Jesus by commanding them to be baptized. But it was never intended by the Holy Spirit of God to be read by us and for us to deduce that baptism saves you or that selling your possessions and giving everything that you make from that to the poor saves you. Okay, baptism is your first step of obedience as a Christian, but baptism does not save you. Your salvation is based solely on the works of Jesus Christ alone. And we come to Christ in repentance and faith, repentance of our very specific sins, not generic sins. So we mustn't give an inch of headway to to any teaching that robs our triune God of receiving all the glory for our salvation. So that's what baptism is not. So what is baptism? Because we're trying to ensure that we see it as a means of grace, right? A means by which Christ grows you, a means by which Christ nurtures you in the gospel. So I'm going to spend the remainder of our time fleshing this out, okay? And the other other points 
won't be as long as, as this first point, but that is a critical point for us to, to internalize, for us to understand. The second point is this, the emphasis of, of, of baptism is God's covenant faithfulness, not our profession of faith. Okay, the emphasis of baptism is God's covenant faithfulness and not a profession of faith. Right? In other words, our baptism should focus more on God and His faithfulness okay, than on the person being baptized. Right? Our baptism is a sign that points us okay, toward the God who's faithful to save sinners. Right? And, and there are at least three ways in which, we, which baptism makes us more God-focused or God-centered, although I'm sure we could, we could think of more together. And the first is this. Baptism is Trinitarian. Right? Baptism is Trinitarian. Right? We explicitly see that from the teaching of Jesus when I read the Great Commission just a moment ago, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. We baptize in the name of our triune God, Father, Son, in Holy Spirit. That is foundational to what makes our baptism Christian, right? To what makes this practice Christian and what makes it therefore God-centered. And, and this is the only baptism that is recognized by the, the Christian church. There's, quote, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all, through all, and in you all, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And Christ who, who has all authority, has commanded us to give baptisms in the name of our triune God. So our baptism should remind us as Christians of the triunity of God. We should be listening for that when, when, when we hear an elder conduct a baptism at Deer Park Fellowship. Okay, so baptism is Trinitarian. Secondly, baptism proclaims our union with Jesus. Baptism proclaims our union with Jesus, right? How, how often, believer, do you wrestle with assurance? How often do you wrestle with assurance, right? How often do you struggle to believe that you really are the recipient of all the benefits that Christ has earned as it relates to your redemption, right? That, that you truly receive what Christ earned even though you are forever undeserving of it. Right, going back to the Colossians passage I read to you at the beginning of the service, we see a few things, and you can turn back there. I'm not going to read it again, but Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, you can just look at it as I talk through a couple of elements quickly here. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, but we see there the Apostle Paul preaching our spiritual union with Jesus. As we go into the water, or as we observe others go into the water, we're reminded that when Christ died and he was buried, so did we die. So too were we buried. And as we are raised out of the water, we're reminded that in Jesus' actual resurrection, right, we're spiritually resurrected. Right? We were made alive. Right? The, 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 the old man died. The new man made possible through the bodily resurrection of Jesus is alive. It's alive. We've been made alive, though 
we were dead, and we too will physically and eternally resurrect one day too. We have, according to the Scripture, we've been, according to that Colossians 2 passage, we've been forgiven. Right? Forgiven of what? Again, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, all trespasses. We've been forgiven of all of our trespasses, our sins. Right? The laws that we've broken, those laws which remind us of our condemnation, our sins were nailed according to the Word of God, according to Colossians 2 here. Our sins were nailed to the tree. But not just that, but the coming up out of the water reminds us as well of the victorious nature of Jesus Christ, right? The enemy believed that the death of Christ was his victory, right? Yet, when Christ gloriously resurrected from the dead, he, according to Colossians 2, he disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Church, God triumphed through the resurrection of Jesus. And as we think on our baptism, as we observe the baptisms of others, God grows us in grace and he gives us strength, gives strength to us when we're tempted to, to believe the voice of the accuser. He uses baptism to remind us of our union, our spiritual union with Jesus Christ and to remember that in Jesus who conquered over our spiritual enemies that we too, because again, we share union with Jesus, we too are more than conquerors. Romans chapter 8, verse 37, not because we're great, but because Christ is great. So our baptism proclaims our union with Jesus, and man, do we need to be reminded of that regularly. And God in His graciousness has given us a picture. We can think back to our baptism and we can have it preached to us anew, our union with Jesus Christ. And when we see new believers go into the waters of baptism, we can have preached anew to us our spiritual union with Jesus. And then the third way we see the God-centered nature of baptism, believe it or not, is in that baptism is a one-time observance. Baptism is a one-time observance. When we make it about our profession of faith, <clears throat> which again isn't the emphasis, or the emphasis of baptism is God's covenant faithfulness. But when we make it about our profession of faith, we end up getting baptized more than once. Right? And, I, and I'm speaking as someone who has sadly fallen prey to that way of thinking. Now, this is a notorious passage within evangelicalism, right? right? But we emphasize our decision. We emphasize our wishes. We bring this delusion of autonomy to our baptism. Right? The whole thing designed to be about God becomes so much about us in a very overbalanced way. We make it about our sincerity. We make it about getting our theology exactly right. So when we do this, it's no wonder that we end up getting baptized more than once, right? When we emphasize ourselves too much in our baptism, right? And, and of course, we're there. There's an element to us in it. I get, I'm speaking to this overbalance of where it's just us in view here. But when we emphasize ourselves too much in our baptism, we begin to believe functionally, practically, that God's covenant, faithful is con his covenant faithfulness is contingent upon us, not on Him. 
And again, many of us have that story. I, I, I have that story as well in my own past. We tell ourselves, I didn't know what it really meant then, we say. Or I misunderstood. Or I wasn't sincere enough. Or I didn't think myself to be the worst of sinners. Of course you didn't. Of course you didn't, right? You are your most immature at the moment of your baptism. You're your most immature at the moment of your baptism. The problem with, with the running all of these kind of sincerity and understanding scenarios in your head is that, again, it revolves too much around you. It revolves too much around me. God does the saving. Of course you didn't know what baptism meant. We still don't grasp all the riches of what baptism really means. We still don't grasp it because it's inexhaustible, because we'll be seeking to, to avail ourselves of these means of grace forever. It's a means of grace God's using to mature us, right? What we're all doing is together, growing in maturity together, and we must grow up in maturity. We must, by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, conform our lives to what baptism preaches to us. So at Deer Park Fellowship, if you've been baptized in an Orthodox Protestant church, one that teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, one that rejects baptismal regeneration, if you've been baptized in that sort of church, you don't need to be rebaptized. You don't need to be rebaptized. But if you're a Christian who has not been baptized, You've never been baptized. You need to be baptized because it's an issue of obedience. And one of our elders would love to talk to you about that. And so this morning, if you're, staying, if you're sitting there as a Christian and you have never gone into the waters of baptism, come talk to us. We would love to talk to you about that this morning. And then the last thing that we see, and again, this is, we could stay here much longer, but... Baptism is commanded by Christ, who has all authority, and it belongs to the visible church. Belongs to the visible church. Okay, baptism, it doesn't belong to individuals. Again, it, we, we shouldn't be thinking so individualistically about our baptism. Okay, it doesn't belong to individuals. It doesn't belong to parachurch organizations. It belongs to the gathered church, right? the place where you find the officers of the church and the Lord's Supper regularly practiced, the place where there is preaching, the place where there is corporate prayer, the place where there is long-term accountability. Right? When the Lord saved people through the preaching of the Word in the early church, they were baptized into the visible church. That's, that's what I'm talking about here. Go back to the passage I read at the start of this morning, Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42. Again, this is after a particular sermon that the Apostle Peter preached. Right. Then those, it says in verse 41, then those who gladly received his word. I love that, right? In, in humility, we're to receive the preaching of the word of God happily, gladly. Right? So those who gladly received his word were baptized. They were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. That's a lot of baptisms, by the way. I don't know if the, the apostles had to tag each other out after time and kind of divvy that up, but, but 3,000 souls were added to them. 
And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. In other words, this would have, this would have been the gathering, right? Preaching, Lord's Supper, corporate prayer, along with the baptism of new converts, right? the baptism of new converts. This is what was entrusted to the apostles by Jesus Christ. This is what was entrusted to them, right? We see that again in the Great Commission before he ascended to the right hand of God where he's presently ruling and reigning. And it was the apostles that planted particular churches. It was the apostles that planted local churches and entrusted these things in turn to the elders of local churches. Paul, again, an apostle writing to the church of Ephesus, a church that he planted and that he later entrusted to Timothy, he was an elder or pastor there. He speaks of the apostles laying the foundation, if you will, of the local church. Again, a task given to them by Jesus, who's the cornerstone. We see this Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. I don't think I have this on the screen because I didn't warn the guys I was reading this. I made the sermon longer and didn't tell the guys in the back. Um, but Paul says this, Now therefore you're, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Right? Speaking of the body of Christ to a church that would have been gathering called the church of Ephesus. Right? So when you're baptized, we shouldn't think of it as an individualistic thing, even though you're individually going into the waters, of course. Right? But you're proclaiming God's covenant faithfulness to you and to your church. Right? You're proclaiming your union with Jesus Christ to your church, which means that you're also identifying with your church. Right? You're outwardly becoming a part of the body. Again, this isn't a salvific event, but baptism is your entry door into the local church, into the local assembly. It's your entry door into membership and into partaking of the Lord's Supper as we seek to, according to 1 Corinthians 11, discern the body of Christ, the members of the body of Christ. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and having been made to drink into one spirit, for in fact the body is not one member, but, but many, but many. So baptism doesn't save you. Right? The emphasis of baptism is God's covenant faithfulness, not your profession. We see that in baptism being Trinitarian. We see that in baptism preaching to us our spiritual union with Jesus. We see it in baptism being a one-time um, uh, observance and then we see that baptism is commanded by Christ who has all authority and belongs to the visible church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for this time in your word. Help to renew our minds on baptism. And Lord, help us to remember our baptisms regularly. And God, help us as, as you bring new Christians to our local church. And as we see them go into the waters of baptism, Lord, help us to celebrate your work in them and your work in us. And we give you all praise, honor, and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the portion of our service where we come to the